The theme song for the sequel cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. The sequel cast is also a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can listen to the sequel cast streaming on the Stitcher app at stitcher.com. Get more episodes of the sequel cast from sequelcast.com. Enjoy the show. I gave you that money in good faith. But you told me I could fucking trust you. Now you're going to tell me after all this shit I can't have my money? Yeah, now you got the picture coming. The credits roll, there's always more to tell Especially when the video sales are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end This is Sequel Cast And your hosts have asked that I inform you Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. We're finishing up our look at the 48 Hours duology with another 48 Hours. You know, most of the, the crew and the cast from the original return in here, even people that were in minor parts, uh, directed by Walter Hill again, starring Eddie Murphy and um, Nick Nolte. Music again by James Horner, all that good stuff. That's and right, the boys are back in town. You know, I, I look at this movie, I think of another lazy Eddie Murphy sequel we talked about early <laughs> in the sequel cast career. I, You actually were, were not on the episode, and it's perhaps one of the worst episodes of the show, but I'm talking about not Beverly Hills Cop 3, but Beverly Hills Cop 2. Ah, uh, yes. Where in the first movie, Eddie Murphy... Uh, I guess played a character, but both himself seems like he was hungry. He like knew he had to bake his big splash in the movie. And in this one, he just see you know he likes the nice clothes. He doesn't want to go back to wearing beat up t shirts and jeans, and wants to just do the minimal thing possible to get his paper. Paper well, meaning like money. That's almost leave. everybody in this movie. <laughs> Nick Nolte, we can talk about Nick Nolte. I think he's like not bad. Nick Nolte still feels like the same character. But Eddie Murphy just feels like you dropped in uh, Eddie Murphy from you know any movie he did around this time period. It doesn't necessarily feel like the same character. Well, he's you know trying what, too hard. Well, you know what? Something I felt uh, an observation I had about Eddie Murphy in this movie is that a lot of a lot of takes of his seem like it's the first take, and he clearly didn't want to do any more. Yeah, I mean, you know, this isn't. Uh, I mean, to tell a story from another film, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3 was directed by John Landis, and Eddie Murphy was in a bad mood the entire movie. So a lot of the scenes where Eddie Murphy is talking to someone, they just had to use Eddie Murphy's stand-in and then film the close-ups with Eddie Murphy afterwards (laughs) to get the reactions. Because the theory John Landis had is Eddie Murphy was jealous that Denzel Washington was the new, um, you know, black actor star in Hollywood. And as David Spade did in a very famous bit on Saturday Night Live on the news, Weekend Update, oh, look, a falling star when they showed a picture of Eddie Murphy in the corner. Oh, that's right. Has Hollywood Minute. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was after this, I think, right? A good. I mean, this was 1990. And people think, oh, another 48 hours, you might think it was a flop. Actually, not the case. Worldwide, it made $153 million. That's about what the first made. Of course, the budget on this was $38 million. Uh, this is all according to Wikipedia. So the budget was like four times the first one, 
because everyone's famous now. Well, Nick Nolte was famous at the first one, but like even, even more so. Although Eddie Murphy now has top billing, he also I was paid more than Nolte for this one. I think uh, according to some sources, it looked at more than double. Right, and also this is a an Eddie Murphy production. Uh, he also produced like Beverly Hills Cop Two. The <laughs> the story uh, credited to Fred Broughton is allegedly a nom de plume of Eddie Murphy, uh, which is weird when this story. God, it, it's like the original, but worse. But what I found surprising doing research is they cut over the studio cut like thirty minutes of this film. Yeah, the as the original cut ran more than two hours, and the studio got cold feet uh, after seeing uh, the success of Blade Runner and wanted wanted it really cut down. And what surprised me about that is this film's like a chunky film <laughs> at only 93 minutes length. Now, to be fair, this uh, director's cut has never been released. I wouldn't mind seeing it at some point, right? I'm, I'm sure it would make the plot make a bit more sense. I it seems a so. bit convoluted and random with uh, what we see here. So, I mean, let's talk about uh, when we saw this film first. It was watching it for the sequel cast. Uh, when my, I was around 12 years old, my family moved to Atlanta, Georgia. My dad got a, a new job. And when we did all that, we, um, for some reason, got on a kick of renting a bunch of Eddie Murphy films to watch as a family. And one of them was 48 Hours, and we really liked it. My dad had seen it before. I don't know why we never picked out another 48 Hours at that time. So... Uh, yeah, I've never seen this before watching it for the sequel cast. What about you? I thought I'd seen it before, but af- after having seen it uh, yesterday, I can confirm I had never seen it before until watching it for the sequel cast. It's amazing when you think of all the films Eddie Murphy did, particularly these sort of like action comedies in the 80s and 90s, how they all kind of blend together. Yeah. Because he had this period, and then after that, he kind of did nothing but, but family films. Uh, really for quite some time and now i mean i don't think he's acted in a movie since tower heist uh no though although by all accounts that was actually quite good i've heard that was good yeah i've never i haven't seen it i wouldn't mind uh watching it you know and um oh and just so we can get it in there he barely did anything on the snl 40th anniversary special Uh, we've mentioned that several times but i'd like to point that out again what a crushing disappointment that was to me and eddie murphy is a master at manipulating the press to, to say it was a build-up and such a big thing. I mean, even, uh, gee, when was it? I, I think maybe 10 years ago they came out with a huge oral history of Saturday Night Live that's about a thousand-page book, and they recently did an updated version of it, and Eddie Murphy was one of the only cast members that refused to participate. Huh. And he's like, it's a fun time in my life. I let my work speak for itself. Which... I mean, I, I guess that doesn't make it any less disappointing. Well, the thing is, he has to save his words because he can only say a thousand. And when oh, he says the God. thousandth word and the last leaf falls from the yeah. tree, he'll die. I mean, that was a movie that was delayed after it was filmed for four years because <laughs> they didn't know what to do with it and then just dumped it in the theater. Yeah. Um, anyway, another 48 hours, as the poster says, the boys are back in town. Which I believe they used as, as the as the the line for the poster on the original one and it occurs to me that is the laziest tagline you can possibly have you could say the boys are back well i'm looking at this it's just the most it's just the most generic poster it's two (laughs) dumb faces of a vague city skyline (laughs) a 
car all there's no like real car chases in this but there's like a car mid chase and then just the boys are back in town which you could apply that to any sequel hey star wars the empire strikes back the boys are back in town Die Hard with right. Vengeance. The boys are back in town. Santa Claus 3. The boys are back in town. Uh, I want to quote the late Roger Ebert. He did a review of another 48 hours, you know, upon its original release. And his first sentence, I think, just nails this movie. Um, so, uh, if you will, I, I will quote this. You know how sometimes in a dream you'll see these familiar scenes and faces floating in and out of focus, but you're not sure how they connect? Another 48 Hours is a movie that feels the same way. I can see that. I think this movie wastes a lot of time needlessly repeating the original. I Not love... just that. I think the plot is needlessly complicated. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't help. You don't get any real character development scenes. I mean, part of what I loved at the first film, I think you liked this too, Thrasher, is... You had such a quick wit back and forth and such a simple, clean, direct plot. They're just trying to get the money. Like, you know, that's it. And even then, they and still the had time for all these little character touches, like Eddie Murphy always trying to get laid and, and Nick Nolte's alcoholism. Those nice, subtle character touches worked well, and they're completely absent from this film. I'm just trying to get some trim, man. A stiff wind gets my dick hard. Yeah, it's... <laughs> right. Even the wind and... was sharper. Yeah, the pacing was certainly sharper. I think... And that you keep Eddie Murphy separate from Nick Nolte for so many of the scenes at the beginning of the film is just really irritating. Like, I don't know why it spends such a long time with this setup. Um, the only, uh, one of the few things I thought was interesting about the film is, okay, so we have the trope that one of the bad guys in the biker gang is a brother of the bad guy from the first film. Which, I strangely enough, this is one of the few movies where I didn't mind that contrivance. That's okay. You're trying to get the the story going and, and and give an excuse for them to get Eddie Murphy, who's who's found his way back in jail again. Um, well, no, he didn't even find his way back in jail. You you come to oh, find out that he never out, got right? out of jail then... in the first place. He got framed for stealing the prison payroll. Now I don't know how the hell that's even possible. Which, as Eddie Murphy even points out, for that for him to have stole the prison payroll role, he would have had to have been left alone in the warden's office with an open safe. Right. So there's that. but And you have a, a sort of mystery going on. There's a main guy called the Iceman that's kind of the mastermind. Well, who only Nick Nolte believes that there is an ice, this guy called the Iceman controlling all the hard drug traffic uh, through uh, San Francisco. Which, in many ways, I honestly think this movie would have been better if it turned out there was no Iceman. <laughs> Oh, it would have been a, a literal phantom menace, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe maybe it was a cabal, or it was, or if it was an ice woman, that would have been more interesting. What if Nick Nolte was the Ice Man all along? <laughs> <laughs> well, the <laughs> thing is, a, once once the notion that there's this shadowy figure that no one believes in called the Ice Man, you of course immediately start figuring out, okay, well, what character that isn't Eddie Murphy or Nick Nolte, the which character is the Ice Man, uh, and they they do a good job of introducing some red herrings, but they don't do a good job of keeping you focused on on the red herrings. I I had it figured. I I I knew it was a cop by the time the third red herring was introduced. The only thing good they do with the bad guys uh, being the biker gang for the most part is they're cop killers. They're dangerous. They have real heavy weaponry, and I oh, like yeah. that part of it. I mean, they certainly feel more dangerous 
than the thugs we got in the first film. Who, yeah, they, who are more sort of weaselly, and they're just trying to, you know, get get out and make a run for it as fast as possible. I mean, yeah. yes, he had the big uh, Native American fella, but he didn't. He couldn't like blow cars apart with a single gunshot. Yeah, that is actually one thing I really want to talk about. Nothing turns me against an action movie or any movie in general, really, than unrealistic gunplay, and it is all over this movie characters will be hit with a single bullet and that bullet will impact them with enough force to send them flying out of whatever window is behind them. And the ridiculous explosion at the beginning at the raceway? Oh, yeah. Well, well, at least the explosion makes a kind of sense because there's a shootout by a, a high-octane uh, fuel station. So there's lots of combustible material there. That being said, it's like the last place you would want a shootout and no one has any reservations <laughs> about drawing guns and opening fire. Well, they do make a point of that. I mean, that's one of the few scenes I sort of enjoyed in the film is they chew out Nick Nolte for doing all these unnecessary maneuvers. On the other hand, this is a sequel. You know, the audience uh, has expectations of bigger and badder explosions. And uh, while they but certainly do that... Get. Yeah, while they certainly do that, it takes away from the intimate grittiness of the original 48 Hours. And this film just altogether feels safe. I mean, that you have Eddie Murphy singing Roxanne again on the headphones just reminds you how much funnier... It was when he did it in the first film. Well, that's that's one of those things. Like that looks like a rehearsal take. That is such a bad take. Of, and they, of... the thing that kills me is they could have cut that gag, and later on they kind of do a fun spin where he's listening to a James Brown tape. Yeah, the James Brown bit is great because he it, did it's a killer good. James Brown on SNL. You know, the hot tub sketch. Yeah, they sure. should have just limited it to the James Brown. You know, don't like they should they should have had him singing if they were going to have him sing anything by Sting in the Police. It should have been a much more obscure song. Or how about you know he could have been on the bus. He he sticks in his favorite tape. He starts to sing Roxanne, and then the tape snaps. Right, it's broken. He's like, oh, they broke my tape. Let me get another one. And he puts something in, and then it's James Brown. I don't know. Like, there's other ways you could set up that gag. But well, to I mean, have they do that, kind it's of set it up. Because when he's getting his stuff started, back yeah, from the county, he's like, he's like hey, man, I'm missing a tape. There's supposed to be a James Brown tape in here. There's oh, James Brown tape in here, yeah. Uh, but that you have... Um... Gee, where am I trying to go with this? Just, just retread, yeah. lots of there retreads re of gags. And there is a lot of retreads. Even, like, locations. They go to another country western strip bar. Although this yeah. has a bit of, like, a Mad Max S&M uh, theme. <laughs> at the end, you know, with the the sort of nipple clamps on there. Oh, yes, um, the bird cage. We're not talking about Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Oh no, with with those, <laughs> with those elevator stupid. cages that they're all in. Oh, that was great. Although I think that in that action scene at the end, it's a bit of a callback to the action scene at the end of the first one because you ha again have pink smoke. Although it's not <laughs> nearly as atmospheric as the uh, alleyway in Chinatown. Yeah, I was kind of like, and with, with those, with those like cages, I kept expecting somebody to get hit with a cage, or somebody to swing on a cage, or for somebody to get crushed by a descending cage. I, I felt like they only used about fifty percent of that location's possibilities. I mean, why does this movie suck? Like the pacing is awful. It like even though this plot is convoluted, it's not that complicated. There's a lot going on for no good reason. Well, the well, the other thing is this movie. This the way everything is in this movie. It could take place the very next day after the events of 48 Hours. 
Mm, because because okay. absolutely nothing has changed in anyone's life except that right. Nick Nolte's no longer with that woman anymore. Well, you can't. I mean, that you could see that coming a mile away. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's like there's there's like there's no. The only reason you know time has passed is because Ed, is because they Eddie Murphy. You know, I think they they mentions that he was in there for longer because he got framed for stealing the payroll. I think this movie would have been much more successful if Eddie Murphy was out of prison. Maybe he had used that money to make something of himself. He had like a real Dickensian transformation. He becomes a big wheeler and dealer. And then he, but then something comes up because of his past and he has to go to Nolte. What if Nick Nolte, you know, he's such an alcoholic, he gets on the skids ends up in jail himself, and Eddie Murphy has to free Nick Nolte from jail that for 48 would, hours. That would also be a neat twist. Right? I, I mean, mean there's something different, but this is the same goddamn... Uh, not the same plot, but the same... Uh, very similar structure, and similar things go on. And despite the fact it's like the same director and stuff, uh, the script is worse. The um, the pacing is, is, is awful. Oh yeah, it really makes me wonder what that you know the director's original cut would have been like. Would it be a quantifiably better film, or would it just be more of this lame retread? You know, sometimes more footage can make a film seem shorter because it seems like less random, and you get these these fun character moments. And, uh, if, it, and if it fixes yeah. the pacing, yes. Right. I mean, th- there's a film. Uh, gee, it came out about when I graduated college. Kingdom of Heaven. Have you seen it? Uh, no, the, no. Directed I by Ridley Scott has uh, which is Orlando Bloom. It's a historical epic set in the Crusades. Um, and I think the theatrical cut was like two hours. And then uh, and the director's cut was like three hours. Like it was a huge difference. And the theatrical cut felt shorter because you had a lot of good character building scenes. Uh, the movie didn't just make characters disappear for no good reason. Um, I mean, that's an example of a great director's cut. And perhaps the we'll see the director's cut of this one day, although Maybe. I doubt it. Oh, that would be it, cool. And yeah. you know, another thing that that really upsets me, there's there's no 48-hour time limit. Uh, that's a line of dialogue that was cut from the longer version, apparently. Oh, so apparently there was a line of dialogue to justify Yeah, the saying they hours. had to find Iceman within 48 hours or something, right? Well, you see, that's something that needs to be there. Yep, uh, there are scenes with the police chief, and this, this is off of Wikipedia, so I mean, as far as I know, there's no way to see this director's cut, but... Uh, it must be in interviews or something with Walter Hill where he said, oh, yeah, the studio cut a lot out of the film, blah, 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 which that's not so unusual. I mean, it's only really the cream of the crop directors that get final director's cut on stuff. Well, you know, if if any of these scenes exist on like as like a DVD extra, please, listeners, go out there and do a phantom edit that restores 48 <laughs> hours, another 48 hours. Borrow yeah. footage from the first movie if you have to. I mean, you could cut this film down to 30 minutes and not miss a whole lot. It's just such a, such a waste and such a big drop from the first one. Oh, no, there's something I've got to ask you. Yes. So when they're in when they're in that uh when they're in that that redneck bar, uh mm-hmm. so that ba- so it's a redneck bar that is playing some sort of <laughs> some sort of funk jazz is what the band is playing for whatever damn reason. Is the lead singer of that band Eddie Murphy in a wig? You know... Because this was after this was after coming to America. This was geez. after Eddie Murphy started experimenting with playing multiple roles. 
Uh, gee. And it, that band it, it been. sticks out so much. It's almost like Eddie Murphy is making fun of G.E. Smith. And know, the Saturday been. Night Live band. It could have been Charlie Murphy or something, one of his, uh, his brother. It could have been Charlie. I'll, I'll give you that. It could have been Charlie Murphy. Yeah. So I, I really don't know, but you're right. I mean, Coming to America was really the first film where Eddie Murphy started doing the shtick of playing a bunch of different characters. You know, later on we get such classics as Vampire in Brooklyn um, and The Nutty Professor and Norbit. So it could be Eddie Murphy incognito. I'm not really sure. Um, All all franchises we will not be covering. (laughs) Yeah, because, uh, yeah, listeners, I guess we should mention that. Uh, if you don't know, <laughs> this is one of the last episodes of the sequel cast. Next week, we'll be doing a finale episode that's, I think, nearly two hours in length. Um, and we reveal the identity of the murderer. Reveal the identity of the murderer, uh, the murderer of the show, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and, and you'll we'll have every former co-host on the show. So it's Thrasher, myself, BJ, and Jason, plus... Super fan of the show, Alex. Uh, it's a it's a real great time. I think you're gonna really like the episode, and it's a, a fitty, fitting send off to the sequel cast. A couple of your favorite characters also make an appearance. Multiple Chucky Spielboigs, uh, who's <laughs> nobody's favorite character. <laughs> Recursive Spielboigs, <laughs> which could be the name of his biography. What Spielboig divided by Spielboig? Spielboig. Lucas Boig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should have done a Shecky Lucas. <laughs> How are you doing, folks? I don't know. Listen, I was doing the movie called uh, 47 Hours. It it was going to star Robert De Niro and uh, Martin Lawrence. And also an animatronic alligator. Animatronic alligator. That's right, Georgie. Uh, Georgie, Georgie, Pudding and Pie, Lucas Boyg. It was uh, gonna have an alligator called Snappy, and it'd have a snacky, snappy comeback because they would go, "Hey, you know, that's we got forty-seven hours before this crime happens," and they'd cut to Snappy, and Snappy wouldn't say anything, but his mouth would snap open and shut, and now, the sound effects would be out of sync. And you know, you you could have him comment that the situation they're in is maxi bomb bad. You know, I think we'll leave that to the the professionals. Yeah, we're trying to do uh, 47 hours. In the sequel, it's about uh, the the older guy played by uh, a different actor this time, played by Jim Belushi. No John Belushi. We dug up the corpse and kind of moved that around, put some Muppets in there. Oh, he's my uh, third favorite Belushi. That's right. The second being, of course, Canine the Dog. Very popular in Germany. He was a Belushi. Not a lot of people know that. That was all our special effects. All right, back to another 48 hours. So this is a fine episode, listeners. Um, (laughs) I really can't think of much else to say about the movie, except what a disappointment. I mean, you get some okay action. I kind of, I like the scene near the end where Eddie Murphy is kind of one-on-one with the the main biker gang guy, and they both run out of ammo, and you're not really sure what's going to happen. That could have been stretched out a bit more, but that's a neat setup. That was nice and tense. Yeah, uh, it does, when Eddie Murphy just starts laughing, it reminds me a bit of the end of Beverly Hills Cop 3, where <laughs> the good guys all get shot, and then Eddie Murphy puts his finger in like the bullet wound of uh, Judge Reinhold. <laughs> well, actually, that's something that's sort of like, 
that that whole thing with like the bulletproof vest. I feel like maybe that's another thing that got lost when they cut the film. But it feels like oh, the it was bulletproof... Nick Nolte. Yeah, well, like Nick Nolte had a right. bulletproof vest when he was shot when there was an attempted assassination much earlier in the film. You feel like that's laying pipe because Eddie Murphy's like, "Well, how about I get one of those vests? It costs you seventy seven hundred fifty dollars. I don't but, get seven hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, right. But you know, and and actually, like I loved when Eddie Murphy's classic car blew up. I mean, that took me by that, that surprise. Was, yeah, that was a, a neat moment because the money was still in the car. He didn't keep the car in a garage. It looks like shit. That seems like something Nick Nolte would have done. Yeah, well, I thought something <laughs> would ha- have happened to the money, but I, even then, I like that Nick Nolte's not an idiot. He didn't just leave the money in the car. Um, so yeah, so that that's some praise I can I can throw the movie. Um, but okay, so what do you feel about the the reveal of who the Iceman actually is? <laughs> so, if I recall correctly, that actor is also in the first film. Yes, he is. Which I'm glad that they did that. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a nice touch. Um, it's just such a minor character. It's like who gives a shit? If it was the and not that the police chief is in this movie either. Apparently, he is in the longer cut. Yeah. If you can find it, but um, yeah, like if if. I'm sure there were scenes cut out with this guy because you don't do a plot twist like that for some guy that's kind of in the background going like, oh, we got to investigate the scene. Yeah, I think he I only mean, really gets one line, one scene right. with dialogue before all that. And, um, gee, do you remember that character's name? I'm trying to think of uh, the actor's name. But, I mean, he was in a lot of Paul Verhoeven films, like Flesh and Blood. Um, uh, he's in uh, RoboCop, I think. He's definitely in the Ridley Scott movie Blade Runner, as a, he's the replicant that's being interviewed at the beginning. Um, he's, he's been, been in, in so, a lot of things. Yeah, a character actor who's been in a lot of things. Really solid actor, really distinct. Um, I don't know if his face is gaunt, but there's something about it. Like, it's a good, meaty character actor face. A lot of texture on there. It's got character, it really does. Yeah, definitely. Like You see that guy and you're like, oh, I know that guy, right? And I like it's that actor, but to have it pay off, you'd have to build him up in the plot. Well, even then... They make all these reveals at the end just seems, like, lazy. Well, even then, the Iceman's never a threat. The only threat are the bikers who are working against the Iceman by the time the movie's over. There's much of a threat to his business as uh, Nolte and Murphy. And he, oh, that's, a, that's just another sort of lazy thing. When Eddie Murphy realizes the reason they're having so much trouble is because the money from the first movie was stolen from the Iceman's operation, mm-hmm. that he that apparently Murphy saw the Iceman and can identify him. At no point does Nolte just say, well, tell me who you saw. Because that would have solved the goddamn mystery right then and there. More than they go back to the prison and talk to the old guy in the prison who gives the info dump is also lazy. It's... Yeah, the first film is real slick and peppy, and I don't know if fun is the right word. but it, I'll, it I'll had say it. fun. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it, it's a good movie. Yeah, it, It's real zippy. It's, it's a stellar example of the genre. This one's bloated, and you just feel like everyone just did this one for the money. And, and I mean, and to be fair, movie making is a business. They're trying to make movies not to be cute, not to give Eddie Murphy good eyebrows. It's to make money, right? At the end of the day, you're trying to do a profit. And, and this movie was profitable. And despite 100 years of Hollywood, they still haven't learned that you got to make good movies. <laughs> and neither have audiences. Well, I mean, when the year this came out, 1990, the domestic gross uh, in the United States, this was the number 14 movie of the year. Ooh, what's it sandwiched between? 
<laughs> this is a weird one. So it's sand- uh, below it at 15, three men and a little lady. Wow! Coincidentally, three men and a little lady made more money than The Godfather Part 3. Hmm. Which is kind of shocking. Um, above it at 13, the Tom Cruise uh, vehicle, Days of Thunder. Oh, wow. That had its own uh, ride at uh, King's Dominion. That's right. Um, which was owned by Universal. No, Paramount. Shit. Yeah, yeah, Paramount. Paramount. That's right. And the number one movie of 1990, of course, was Home Alone. Uh, which we did cover on the sequel cast. We did. And I, I think, was it... Yeah, and we had a, we had a guest, right? Um, she wrote a book about John Hughes and stuff. I she, believe good so. Good thing I looked this shit up. Uh, let me look that up. Well, I don't well we didn't know we'd be talking about it. No, no, because we, we, if nothing, we our show prep is all Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> well, I maybe right. yours. I do a certain amount of, of research. Uh, it was uh, Susanna Gora, author of You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, The Brat Pack, John Hughes, and Their Impact on a Generation. Yep, real, and, uh, real good book. And James, the Home Alone enthusiast. That's right. Of course. Um, okay. I'm looking at a picture of Eddie Murphy looking pissed in front of the logo for Shrek 4. So I'm a bit thrown <laughs> off there. Oh, gosh, there is a Shrek 4, huh? It's actually not better than Shrek 3, for what that's worth. But, yeah, I mean, Eddie Murphy had some movies that started not doing good around this time, and another 48 hours was a hit he needed. I'm sure Nick Nolte didn't mind uh, how well this movie did. No, it no. It cost I, a lot more than the first one. I, I can't fault them for getting made paid. a profit. Right. Um, I mean, do you think now you'd want to see like a third of forty-eight hours? Only if it's about only if it's about Nick Nolte being retired, and Eddie Murphy <laughs> wanting to treat him to like a retirement party, and they run afoul of somebody and have to go on the run. I want to get your eyes from the ass man. Don't <laughs> bring him up again. Oh. God, one of us is getting too old for this shit, but I can't tell which. Yeah, do a 48 hours Lethal Weapon crossover. That's what <laughs> I want to see. And hey, crossover with Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy likes to play multiple roles. <laughs> and also, they're, uh, the guy who makes their gadgets can be the nutty professor. When Axel Fox murders children at the theme park. Wonder World. At Wonder World. Wonder World. Axel Murphy is on the case, but you know who's with him? Reggie. Ooh, and you can also team up with Axel Cobretti from Cobra. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so. Ew. Gee, okay, another 48 hours. I'm sad. I hate saying this, but it's one of the bigger drops in quality I've seen in the sequel on the sequel cast. It's, it's, it's very disappointing, and, and yet as little fun as I had watching this movie, I really do want to see what the director's cut would have been. Yeah, no, I, I bet it would have to be a better film. I mean, Walter Hill... Uh, directed, I think, the pilot of the excellent series uh, Deadwood on HBO. I think he was a producer on that as well. Um, he recently directed the Sylvester Stallone movie Bullet in the Head, um, which was actually based off a comic book, of all things. That was sort of a, a throwback movie that didn't make a lot of money, but Sylvester Stallone plays a character with the excellent name Jimmy Bobo. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I'm Jimmy Bobo. Yo. 
Um, so there you go, <laughs> ladies and gents. Um, I think we effectively did our pitch a sequel for, for this thing, but I'm going to give another 48 hours. Um, one and a half out of five stars. Disappointing. Could have been so much better, especially so much of the original uh, production and, and cast are, are involved. I'll give it two. Some of that, too, is because a better version of this movie probably does exist, even if we'll never see it. And, you know, I like seeing Murphy on the screen. I like seeing Nolte on the screen. Like, I like seeing the right ingredients laid out on the kitchen counter. It's just a shame that they all get thrown into the garbage disposal by the time this is done. I, if someone ever makes a documentary about another 48 hours, I bet it would be real interesting. Oh, yeah. Real heart of darkness sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing but compromises. Um, (laughs) That's a good title. We need to use that title. Copyright us. (laughs) Nothing but compromises. The true story of the sequel cast. Yeah, maybe for the the book. Who knows? That doesn't mean there's going to be a book, by the way. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, let's move on to movie news. This is shockingly oh. bittersweet, but I, we should do this. Um, I, I was looking around, and uh, have you seen that Ryan Reynolds is actually getting to do his Lawn in the Works Deadpool movie? Yes, I have seen. Like, there's been a real flood of news related to that in this past week. Yeah, uh, Ryan Reynolds claims it's going to be rated R. Yeah, there's there's some debate about whether the the announcement that it was go- that it might be PG thirteen might be uh, connected to it being April Fool's Day. You, know, I'll believe it when I see it. I bet you, if anything, they might do it PG thirteen in the theater, and have a unrated cut uh, on video and, and digital. Well, screw that! If I'm going to see later. it, I want to see PG thirteen. Or I want no. I want to see. I want to see. <laughs> I want to see unrated. Just release it unrated. Have some. Right, have some right. balls. Release it unrated. It would be a huge success. It would challenge the whole rating system that's been holding us back for so long. I think Deadpool is um c- kind of a bigger risk, you know. Although it's it's going to be done by Fox because it's technically part of the X Men universe per their whatever wacky guidelines they have. He, but hey, he's a superhero with the Fox attitude. Yeah, right. Um, It's like the character of Deadpool is so nerfed in X-Men Origins Wolverine. I mean, clearly with the the picture that he that's been going around online uh, with him kind of mocking the Burt Reynolds um, playgirl pose in front of the fire. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's going to be irreverent and kind of wacky. Did you did you play the the Deadpool video game that came out a few years ago? Yes, yes, I did. And I thought that had, like, a fun sense of humor to it. It was fun. I wish they had done a bit more of, like, the parodying video game styles. But beyond that, it was it was very enjoyable game. I mean, if nothing else, a Deadpool movie needs to be smart-ass. And you yeah. need to keep the plot simple. I, I, I want Brian Posehn to be involved as a writer, a consultant, as something. Because he's been doing the comic lately, right, as a uh, writer? Yes, he's been a big contributor to the comic uh, recently. So is the comic still an ongoing series? 
yes. Uh, in fact, it's several series actually that are that are wrapping up because supposedly they are actually going to 100% kill off Deadpool. Now, this being a comic book, we know that that's going to be completely temporary, and at some point within the next three years, no matter how dead he is, he will somehow come back. Especially given how that's been his default power for quite a long time. But for the moment, they're, they are, Marvel is apparently killing him off. Hmm. Well. Yeah, you know, I, I hope it does well. I don't think Deadpool is a character that people remember from X-Men Origins Wolverine. He certainly has a cult uh, comic following. He's been around for decades. And it's an easy character to make uh, super obnoxious. Oh, but yeah, right, that... But Ryan Reynolds is good about the cockiness. Yeah, I guess that's my main concern. I don't want to see someone of I I don't want to see someone obnoxious on the screen for two hours. Yeah, do you think Jim Carrey at his prime would have been a good Deadpool? Ah, uh, maybe a good voice of Deadpool. Uh, mm. I don't think he has the physicality. Right, got it. Um, Although what's a piece of sequel news that appeals to you. Well, I guess mine. This is doesn't necessarily appeal to me, but it's a uh, it's it's bittersweet. Uh, famed B movie actor Robert Zadar actually passed away last night. And what is he best known for? He's best known for a few things, uh, but his most iconic role uh, was in the Maniac Cop trilogy, which is sadly a trilogy we never got a chance to cover. Where he he plays the titular Maniac Cop, but he's also in uh, two MST3K movies, uh, Future War and Soul Taker. Uh, he also is in uh, Frogtown 2, the sequel, the little-known sequel to Terror Comes to Frogtown. He was also mm. the police chief in Tango and Cash, which is probably his most mainstream appearance. And he's well-known for having this yeah. huge chin. He had, uh, supposedly, he had a form of uh, cherubism, uh, which caused him to have a huge lower jaw. So he has this very, very distinct face. Hmm. And, um... Is there anything like pretty recent that he's been in, or he's best known for Maniac Cop? I mean, he's best known for Maniac Cop. He never, he never really stopped uh, working. Let me see if I can find uh, his uh, most recent uh, film appearance. Oh, he's also in. If you want to see a weird movie, track down Pocket Ninjas, uh, a movie that's wrong in all the right ways. Okay. Uh, but let's see his uh, his most recent film appearance. Was in 2015's Oh Samurai Cop Two: Deadly Vengeance. Trauma? Really? They did a second one. I know that's been in the works, but I didn't know it came out. Oh, apparently. Oh, apparently. No, it hasn't come out. Actually, it's still filming, according to uh, IMDb. Okay. So apparently, he's done a couple of things that are going to be coming out. There's also Salvador's Deli, uh, High on the Hog. Looks like the last thing that he may have been that has been released is a blood story where he plays appropriately Gary the Jaw. Are you uh, sort any interest in this uh, X-Files is coming back for a few episodes? I'm I I actually am interested. X-Files as a property hasn't has had enough time to cool that uh, I actually wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more and and the idea that it might that it 
would be a limited series is actually appealing to me. It means they can tell one coherent, self-contained story, which is something that was so missing from the, the final few seasons of the series. The rumor I heard is that it's going to be a, a bunch of Monster of the Week episodes and that they're not going to huh. go to the mythology. Um, oh, no, that's actually kind of cool as well. It's not a turn I would expect them to take. I mean, that last X-Men, or sorry, X-Files movie in particular was just like really strange and, and, and cheap. And I mean, yes, it was cheaper for them to make. But did you see it about like the Russian like scientist experimenting with the decapitated heads? No, actually, I, I oh. didn't. It, it passed me. It passed me by. It kind of it came out at the at a time when I was not interested in more X-Files. <laughs> Billy Connolly's yeah. in that one, isn't it? Billy Connolly is excellent as a molest child molesting priest. He, he, he's quite good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just seemed like so strange. And in that movie, uh, I guess I won't say too much because you're going to see it. But they have like these huge revelations that they don't make a big deal of. And I guess the reason is that was supposed to be the start of a new trilogy of films. But because it same out, came out around the same time as, uh, or not too far past, uh, when The Dark Knight came out, it just got clobbered at the box office. Oh, wow. Not to mention this is before Netflix really took off and people getting back into these old shows again. I, I think the main thing that's inspiring the return of X-Files to TV and the return of Twin Peaks to TV is um, you look at the success Fox had uh, bringing 24 back hmm. for sort of a limited season run, and that was extremely successful. And you can look at the success somebody's having, presumably, with bringing Community back. Um. Yeah, is that doing well? I don't know. I I, I enjoyed I, the first two episodes. I don't know if it's doing well. I've I've find, I, I've seen uh, all the ones released so far. Four episodes. I'm still very much enjoying it. They haven't done a real like straight genre parody episode, which I'm hoping they do get to before the end of the season. I think they are missing that. But I'm still pretty entertained by it. I think that episode two about the um. Virtual reality was sort of a parody. That well, actually, that that it it parodied a lot of things about the depictions of computers. I wouldn't call it a, a genre parody, but it did Not get a... it did get depictions of virtual reality so right. Nothing will be better than that episode from season one of Community. That was a Goodfellas takeoff about serving chicken nuggets <laughs> at the uh, cafeteria. Ah, uh, yeah, brilliant. Uh, let's move on to what you watching. That's a very good question. What you watching, Matt? Well, I got to see the uh, documentary Life Itself about Ooh. Roger Ebert. It's currently streaming on Netflix uh, in the United States. And I, I think it's good. You know, the, the book mainly was a collection of blogs that Roger Ebert wrote. Um, and, and they were expanded and, and so forth. But it was kind of randomly laid out chronologically. And the movie kind of takes the best part of those and, and lays them out in order and uh, what impressed me the most is, yes, you do get a lot of talking heads, but A, you get a lot of people that disagreed with Roger Ebert, uh, even though this was his officially, you know, an official documentary. It was one that he was behind. And and B, he gave um, the, the director full access. So I had no idea how far he had deteriorated. I had seen the pictures, but you get a whole new dimension where uh, basically cancer had, had eaten so much of his jaw that they removed his lower jaw completely he had yeah. no lower set of teeth but yet you see the um the remnants of the chin just kind of waggling below the upper part of the mouth and the documentary is not afraid to show that it shows them jubbing uh, jabbing tubes in his neck to feed him 
uh, it gets pretty raw with the medical footage, and I think with good reason. Um, I'm glad that they he back on that. Right. No, and, and that they continued to he continued to to write reviews, although not as prolifically, understandably, right under those circumstances. Um, uh, I I found quite moving. I think the documentary is a bit long. Um, uh, by far the best stuff is sort of the the bitchiness behind the scenes footage between Siskel and Ebert and um, <laughs> Siskel's wife uh, has no lost love towards Ebert until he apparently warmed up a bit uh, towards the end of his life. But I, I learned things I never knew, like Gene Siskel used to pal around with Hugh Hefner. Oh, cool. And they used to do these crazy, you know, airplane flights together full of babes <laughs> and go to exotic locations, and they show some vintage photographs. So that was pretty fun. Uh, but it, certainly uh, anybody that listens to the show, anybody that likes movies, uh, would enjoy life itself. Now, I do have a, a question related to that. Be- yes. Uh, because when 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 Siskel died, this actually happened. How much footage from the critic did they use in that documentary? Um, I believe none, hmm. which is kind of surprising. I could be mistaken, but I don't recall any footage from the critic. Uh, but that is an excellent episode of the critic. Uh, easily the best of the series. Oh yeah. The was it Gene and Roger and Jay and something Alice. And Alice, I think yeah, Gene, Roger called. and Jay and Alice. And Alice, uh, yeah. I mean that that's a a good one. Um, they sing in that one too. <laughs> yes, and they apparently did it in one take. And they're like, you "Sure, you guys don't want another one?" And they're like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> and some of that animosity, I think, was very real between uh, the two of them. But it's to their credit, they both stayed at their Chicago papers. When, after they became syndicated, they got huge offers from L.A. and New York and the Washington Post and all this stuff uh, to, to write for bigger papers. And they stuck with their guns with the Chicago Sun-Times for Ebert and the Chicago Tribune for Siskel, uh, respectively. Um, I, I guess we can talk about this briefly. What did you think about, do you think uh, Siskel and Ebert, I guess they just called it Roger Ebert at the movies, right? Do you think it should have carried on after Siskel died? Because that always seemed a bit strange to me. Like, I get why the brand is popular, but it never was the same. Well, Richard I, Roper was okay, but it doesn't have that same feistiness that Siskel had when they really laid into each other. I think there needs to be a place for that kind of film criticism, and the internet isn't the place for that kind of film criticism. I, mm. I think that format should should be kept alive for you know for for people like us who like to be informed about films and and who like to who who like to see that that very often clash of of opinions that that they have because that's that's the one thing i have noticed it, uh, no matter how much they disagreed you know both of their stances always seemed equally valid to me whether they were based on reason or emotion or or film literacy and and that's so wonderful, and of course, I know it's it's going to be nearly impossible to recapture the same alchemy that that Gene and Siskel, or that, that Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert had. But you you need to try. Well, and towards the end of Roger Ebert's life, when he could no longer uh, be on on camera, right? They they did a, a continuation show that was in syndication that just didn't last very long. That didn't work out very well, I think, with um. It was a man and a woman critic. I, I don't recall their names. The man had a Russian last name. Um, and yeah, I mean, they had such a unique chemistry. How how could you compete with that? And yet, I think a modern version of that that I think is pretty good is a podcast that has uh, Leonard Maltin and... Oh, and Baron you know, Vaughn. 
And yeah, Baron Vaughn. Molten on movies. Molten on movies. That's it. Thanks. They haven't um, asked us to guest on that yet, and I'm very disappointed. Eh. Uh, but Malton on Movies, I think, is, is a quite good podcast where they, they sort of limit their focus to uh, a few films of a particular type or, or genre they enjoy. I do, and, and, I, and they and list do, a good one, a bad one, and one that's sort of like a, a sneaker. Yeah, like an unknown classic. Unknown or, uh, classic, right, right. A hidden treasure. Yeah. But yeah, actually, that's that's, that's actually uh, quite a good podcast. That, that certainly has an endorsement. Uh, so, you know, af- after the final episode of the sequel cast... Re-listen to our entire catalog again, then listen to Malton on movies. Then listen to our entire catalog again. What is something you've been watching? Well, I want to say I wanted to be able to say a movie. However, a part-time thing I was doing temporarily became a full-time thing, and I just didn't have time to sit down for a full movie. But I did end up diving uh, headfirst into Rain Wilson's new series, Backstrom. Uh, how is that? Okay, it is a procedural. It is just a procedural, but it's the only procedural I find at all watchable. Uh, and I, th- I think it's simply because Rain Wilson plays such a great asshole. Uh, it's 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 fun. It's fun to see a flawed character like that, you know, go through this arena and solve uh, various mysteries. It's comfort food television. It's not a great show. It may never be a great show, but as far as procedurals go, it's quite good. And set in Portland. It's actually not filmed in Portland. That was a bit of a controversy, although not uncommon. Uh, Portland and Oregon in general doesn't have very good film, uh, you know, tax incentives for people to film here. Um and while they looked at Portland, they chose to film it, I think, in Vancouver. Yeah, I was about to say, it feels like Kits Canada. And it is. Um, Portlandia, they film in Portland. Grimm, they film in Portland. Part of that Oscar-nominated film with, what's her name? Uh, was it Wild, I think the movie was? They filmed around Portland. So there you go. Interesting. Um, now, I heard they filmed uh, Dare Booby Wolf there as well. Uh, yeah, my uncle starred and, and directed in a film called Booby Wolf that uh, was released in one theater for one day uh, in the middle of the week. I think it's on DVD. I did the uh, held the boob mic up high so people could sniff my armpit sweat as I <laughs> stood behind. Sometimes fell asleep as people were filming scenes. That's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, right. By way of Portland. Um, yep. So, why don't we do, as we wrap this up, the um, Paul Goebel Memorial Mashup? Uh, yes, the Paul Goebel Memorial Mashup. Uh, the final... Oh, no, actually, not. I guess... No, not the final, because we will be doing this in our last episode. So, the Paul Goebel Show Memorial Mashup. Uh, it's when I take two separate impressions... Smirch uh, them together into uh, one alloyed impression, and Matt and our guests have to guess what that combined impression is. So, are you ready? I am. So, I first started out in westerns, but 
Really, I, I sort of made my name uh, when I co-created the Fantastic Four with Jack Kirby. My career just exploded. And I remember uh, in, in the 70s, Jack and I were flying an experimental aircraft to, to the San Diego Comic-Con to talk about this amazing comic book. When, when we crashed, I sustained horrific injuries. And uh, you know, it took, it took $6 million for them to repair my body. However, afterwards, I had a set of superpowers of my own, if you can believe it. <laughs> But uh, okay, yeah. um, so you're doing an imitation of of what sounds like Stan Lee, but you're also talking about the six million dollar man. Sadly, I don't know the name of the six million dollar man. And when you initially talked about a crashed airplane, uh, Harrison Ford immediately came to mind. <laughs> so who so, do you think it is? <laughs> six million dollar eh, fuck. Six million dollar Stan. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. I will accept $6 million Stan. Uh, it was actually uh, intended to be Stan Lee Majors. That was my second guess. I, I knew it was Lee something. I, I just didn't know. Well, that's, uh, a good, that's a good middle to go out on, on the, the mashups. <laughs> oh, and actually, the mashups will not be ending with the sequel cast. I am uh, at at least temporarily going to be taking them on the uh, next pod, my next podcast, the Squeakle Cast. And people can find uh, more about that at your Patreon. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, just for Willie T on Patreon, and uh, that that will uh, commence production around the time the Sequel Cast wraps up. Very good. I'll have to give you some podcasting tips from the pros. Excellent. When you get started on how to. Host it and all that fun uh, sausage making uh, doodly doos. And I will give you some <laughs> advice on not making a podcast. <laughs> uh, yep. Um, so, to if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, come to the Iconic Lounge Tuesdays, eight to ten p.m. I host a quiz for geeks who drink at Iconic Lounge Tuesdays, eight to ten p.m. It's uh, a quiz on a lot of different topics. Eight rounds, eight questions apiece. Prizes yeah, and surprises. Excellent. Surprising and her prizing. And him prizing and... Dog prizing. And cat prizing and bird prizing and, <laughs> most of all, you prizing. Yeah, it covers everybody. I think so. So, uh, tune in next week for the finale of the sequel cast. It'll be a sequel cast special episode and be sure to download the episodes while you still can they'll be up through the end of april and otherwise i will have more information later about where to get the episodes uh after that so you can stay tuned to my twitter feed um at SequelCast, and you can follow me on twitter at internet mayor for the sequel cast this is matt and this is thrasher saying you owe me now listen here, Pally. Why did you throw a basketball at my face? I didn't deserve that. <laughs> Let's barf the, the cafeteria guy from You Can't Do That on Television. How'd he get in this movie? <laughs> I was trying to do a Nick Nolte. All that came to mind was vicious poodles from the Hulk. <laughs> Ow! Can't stop myself! Good guy! Stamp it up! Not only was that a callback to SNL, I think Eddie Murphy did that in his stand-up routine as well. I he had a he... lot of references to musical acts in his stand-up career. I think so. Hey, hey you, know, you know how we should end this, really the only way, by declaring that we like to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Mm -hmm.
My girl likes to party all the time. Party all the time. Party all the time. She parties all the time. Produced by Rick James. The sequel cast is a Hipster Goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 